This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman. And this is London FinTech Podcast, episode 189, brought to you in association with Smart Pension and EnlistedBoard.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Bavik Chauhan, VP of Business Development at OKR Financial, to talk about the huge involvement of the UK state in FinTech these days and how to leverage that if you're a FinTech. It's a super painful topic for me. However, as there are countless government schemes to provide finance, it may well be an important one for you and your FinTech. After all, free money is free money, right? It's a super complex thicket, and our Canadian friends at OKR have quite some expertise in helping clients through the maze, as well as providing bridging loans against government funds, which once granted can take anything between a couple of days to six months to arrive. So why am I lying on a bed of nails for this one? At a macro level, as I've touched on before in Realpolitik, I sketched out the past 4,000 years of business regulation and looked in more detail at the past five centuries of company governance. Unsurprisingly, no examples crop up of anarchy being good for business. Equally, if that is the Scylla, the Charybdis is excessive state centralist intervention, which unsurprisingly kills local initiative and innovation, as it is only at the coalface that the miners really understand the seams they are mining. At a micro level, the fintech sector grew up in the UK precisely because the UK was good for innovation, where innovators just got on and did things and the state left well alone. The Cameron Osborne government provided some drum banging, but otherwise left well alone, as back then even their Blairited version of conservatism believed that the market knows best. Fast forward, and amidst our global governance crisis, parts of Australia, for example, literally having turned into police state, and that the UK voted against Corbynist state centralism, we got, um, uh... Corbynist state centralism on steroids, with now the largest UK tax burden since the Second World War, which takes some doing. Matters such as well over £100 billion on one vanity railway line, and some £38 billion on track and trace, which even MPs said was a minimal value, let alone insane amounts of corruption. O tempora, o mores. Anyway, whether you're like me and roll your eyes believing that private wealth should not be conduited via the state to entrepreneurs... Brackets, we did that with 3i for decades post WW2, and why do you think we ended up with so many private venture capital firms? Question mark. Or whether you're over the moon at state centralism. Either way, it doesn't matter, and we are all in need of someone to guide us through this labyrinth of schemes British Business Bank, Agent Co Investment Schemes, C Bills, Grants, Tax Credits, etc., etc. After all, we all play the game by the rules that exist here and now. So, as this episode might actually help you or your fintech, I shall attempt to keep a stiff upper lip at least until when the microphones go off and I can rant and rave. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, Bavik. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Thank you for having me, Mike. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here, back in London. And indeed, and a very strange thing is going on, which the listeners may not be aware of, as this is audio, which is that here is here, in that for the past 18 months, here, for me, has been different for here for the guest, and... uh, People have been um, remote and we, I sort of sat at home, whereas now I'm in, uh, appropriately, one Canada Square, given that OKR is Canadian. And 
rather to my amazement, there were no masks required when, when I got here, and uh, you didn't try and do weird things like sort of bump uh, ankles or elbows or other parts of the anatomy which aren't really sort of suited, <laughs> and shook hands, and it, it all feels relatively normal, actually, which is, which is quite a surprise, although what doesn't feel normal is connecting all my wires in a different way from having done it for 18 months. <laughs> I feel you do as well, because I mean, I've done several podcasts and Zoom meetings like the rest of the world, and it's... It's weird being in person. This is my first interactive podcast as well. So it's, uh, it's strange, but it's normal at the same time. <laughs> yes, and we're all such creatures of habit. And that I found myself this morning thinking, oh, no, it's a long way to go. It's not very efficient. And that's interesting, actually, because one of the problems with the, the modern world is, um, for the past sort of century or so, has been an over-preoccupation with efficiency. Yeah. Efficiency isn't what life's about. Sometimes it's quite helpful not to be inefficient and get stuff done and all that kind of thing. But if we're all just sort of sitting at home with sort of a drip coming into our left arm <laughs> and an outlet coming from somewhere a bit sort of further in terms of sort of food and drink coming in and just staring at sort of pixels all the time, that might, that might be, for the sake of argument, super efficient, but it's not actually very human. And it's only the sort of the human bit that makes life real somehow. I agree with that. I mean, life, I think if you go for 100% perfectionist and using time up, uh, you're not actually have, enjoying life. I don't think so. I don't think you're having that human interactivity, making mistakes. That's how people learn, in my opinion. You've got to fail to learn. And if you're being efficient, you're not going to fail. And I don't think you're going to learn. And you're just going to be in this wheel that just keeps going round and round and round. Yes, and the one thing that, that I found, and, and many other companies have, which is that you can do processes perfectly fine at home on your computer, all that kind of stuff. But what is really missing is the serendipity, it's the chit-chat, it's the sort of the banter. You bump into folks, you have a little chat or something like that. It establishes much more of a connection. Yep. And in terms of efficiency, this may or may not be, quotes, useful in the future, unquotes, but it's the experience of the time. And also, it does allow for serendipity to occur. You know, on the way to the lift, you could say something. So oh, I know somebody who can help you and connect you. And yep. before you know it, stuff happens in the world that wouldn't happen with Zoom. When you go, oh, I, I, no, nice talking, all right, see you. Well, I probably won't see, but that's it, yeah. <laughs> you know, and you've got sort of one minute to go. So, yes, anyway, we all need to make more effort to, uh, to be human while the new world order lets us off temporarily, hopefully for some longer time. So you mentioned the words back in London in roughly that order, as I recall. Yeah. So maybe you'd like to tell us about your career journey and, and what sort of boomeranged you back here today. Yes, yeah, so born and raised in London and I left London just over about 15 years ago, uh, newly married, went to just check out North America, actually in particularly Canada, fell in love with Vancouver and decided to stay there. So I started working out there and my career has really been with a major background in marketing and business development in the UK, with some large corporations, um, big organizations. I decided to uh, sort of utilize my skills out there and actually worked in industries I've never even heard of. Uh, logistics and trucking was my first job and like brand new. It was great and then moved on from there and got exposed to the world of government funding for about six years where I was a managing director and it blew my mind that how much money the government of Canada gives to businesses to grow. And then the more and more I learned, it's around the world. Talking about the UK, Australia, name a country, they all have incentives, but most companies, especially young startups and young companies, they're not utilized and maximized. But the large corporations are utilizing these funding and they don't even need the money, but they get it. So that's what's brought me back here is to, to try and seize that opportunity of trying to educate companies here in the UK about programs that, are, that could help them grow. And we'll talk about OKR a bit more later, but 
off the top of my head, OKR has a something like $120, $150 million fund yep. in Canada, and you guys are doing such a similar fund over here in terms of funding the entrepreneurs. Now, I promise to, to behave, so I, I will behave and, <laughs> and not, to, not rant and rave. So looking at objectively the, the point you're making there, which is certainly that over the past century and definitely since the Second World War, there's been an exponential increase in the complexity of the world. Prior to 1914, the UK had no income tax. Yeah. The colonial office, which ran the whole empire, minus India, had a staff of about 100. And now 100 people can't run the local council and get the verges cut. Fast forward, and regulation is astronomical. Accountancy is astronomical. A small story about um, the state that Gordon Brown, I think, tripled the length of the tax code. George Osborne, as I mentioned him earlier, came in and said, I'm going to simplify it. And by the time he'd gone, he doubled it again. So in the, in the period of about, what, eight years, six, seven, eight years, the UK tax code had increased sixfold. Yep. And even a micro company like me, it was just me, I need accountants and sometimes I even need lawyers. And I think one of the challenges, as you say, which is that if you're a big company, you've got your lawyers over there, you've got accountants, and, and they can sort all this crap out and, and they can plug you in. Whereas, and I think this is where presumably you guys have been so successful and found that you have a role to play in this world. The average founder, as I've talked about many times on the, on the podcast before, doesn't really have much time to think about the board and therefore he leaves it until some day and therefore the board is something that happens to him. Yeah. But the average founder is so busy trying to think of a product and a market and product market fit and all these kind of stuff that you marketers are no backwards that they, I assume, particularly in somewhere like the UK, where the culture was 10 years ago, you just got up and did it, you know, friends and family, a few quid, get you going, a bit of a VCs, and, and that's it. I can't think of many fintechs I've met that they sort of say, oh, well, actually, without state funding, we'd have been screwed. So actually, it's not so much that the founder over here and in other countries goes, oh, I don't like state centralism, or, I won't take their money. Yeah. It's that they're too bloody busy trying to do business. They don't look over that direction. So there's a real, there's a real missed opportunity. Definitely, and I think that's why we exist, and many of these consulting firms now exist in the UK as well, where they specialize in navigating these government incentives that are available within the UK and various other programs. And what's really good about most of these consulting firms is, for startups, they work on success fee. So if they don't get your funding, they don't get paid. So now that allows founders to say, I'll keep building, I'll keep doing my crazy stuff, and I find 50% of the founders crazy because they're very technically smart and all they want to do is build something really good that's in their brain and don't really make time for this going down this path. Now. But there's firms out there that can do that for you. So you just hand off the reins, go get them the money and then they can deploy it and grow in the right manner. So I think I still find, even to this day, and even though all these programs exist, as you come in through university and you come up with a great idea, it's just build, build, build. I want to get it as quick as I can. And there used to be a habit because some people that like to build, especially in the fintech spaces, just don't want to get technology out there, they'll set it to the first and highest bidder really quickly so they can move on to the next project. And they weren't really building companies. And a lot of it's because they don't have the capital to do it. But if they can get the incentives to hire people, to market and commercialize, they may start building companies and hire more people. So it's, it's something that's going to be driven. And I don't think... I don't think any government in any country is doing a good job of promoting these programs. And again, it's the big boys that are getting it. So consulting firms and companies like myself are trying to educate, hey guys, there's money out there, go navigate it and go get it. Yes, talking of Canada in passing, the, uh, but also the big co's doing well. I remember being shocked last year when I saw how much 
Soros's Open Society Foundation gets from the state around the world. It was astronomical. I, I was absolutely um, shocked. So uh, how long has OKR been doing this in Canada? Let's just take that as a little background. So OKR's been around for about five years. And how they began was it's really funny. It's, it's two angels who invested in a lot of tech companies and had a company that were, they were doing, involved with doing a turnaround. They needed about half a million dollars uh, to get to the next level, to the MVP stage. So they said, okay, what could we leverage, get a loan from the bank? The banks turned them down because they had no, in the tech space, didn't really own any assets. Banks said, nope, and they didn't really have much revenue, still pre-revenue. So they said, well, what do these guys have? They opened the books and they had a tax credit. So in the UK, it's called the R&D Tax Relief Program. So in, the, in Canada, it's called SHRED scientific research, and they had about 600,000. So the founder said, hey, why don't we leverage this? Why don't we finance against it and see if we can help them out? And they did. So they pulled a few friends together, lent them some money, nice little interest rate. When the government paid them, they got paid, everyone was happy. So that's what happened just over six years ago. They ended up doing it three or four more times to companies they were involved in, helping them out, assisting them get money where the banks and the Traditional financial institutions couldn't help them. Next thing you know, they launched a fund, started raising capital, and started deploying it. And they've now done that to the degree of a nine-figure sum, so there's a lot of it about. Yeah, so, I mean, they've got a variety of different funds. We've got eight funds, so combined, they're about just over $140 million Canadian. And it's really is private money. So we've got regular people putting the savings in, tax-free savings in, into these funds. We have a fund for that. We have retail investors going through brokers. And then we have institutional and high net worth individuals, which is pretty good. Right. Well, we'll talk about the specific nature of the loans and, and, and stuff like that later on, having given a bit of a, a landscape. But before we dive into you giving us a, just a quick tour d'horizon of what's out there, I would have thought that if I was an entrepreneur starting a fintech, yes, it's very likely I'd be ignorant about all this stuff, A. And B, I might have the reservation that, well, maybe there's a fund there, but it'd be so slow and so long to get that really, actually, you know, my market will have been conquered by the time it takes to get it. And I, I do have an anecdote about a, a chum of mine who is building a wolf sanctuary somewhere in, in Europe. And um, she applied for a bunch of EU grants and in the same way needed somebody in um, Brussels to help navigate to the landscape, facilitate things and, and all this kind of stuff. And at the end of the day, quite some money popped out. But the whole process was something insane. Like, I don't know, off the top of my head, it's like 18 months, two years or something. Yeah, to, it could be, yeah. From start to finish to get through the Euro thing, say, I'm doing a wolf sanctuary. And to actually connect that with the relevant pot of funds took ages. So just narrowing it down to the, the fintech world, people who don't know, well, actually, once they've listened to this show, they will know. And it'll, you'll tell them there's 2,000 schemes. And for some of them, will go, oh, shit, maybe we should check it out. And if these guys or some other guys will actually sort it for us, then we're crazy not to do it. But the second parameter is how long does it take? I mean, does it take two years? No, it varies. So, I mean, first way before you even start navigating is you've got to understand the grants landscape. There's a few key areas to it. It's like 90% of the programs that are out there are some sort of a dollar-to-dollar, a pound-to-pound match. Sorry about Canadian coming out with the dollars. <laughs> but it's a pound-to-pound match. And so... What happens with young companies, they don't actually have the capital to match the funding, so they'll pull out and say, okay, what's the point of applying from the grant? If they give me £150,000, we don't have the money to match it, so we're not going to get approved anyway. So there's a way around that. I'll talk about that in a bit. So 90% of the programs are there, but as, it, as you talk about match, it's about spending money. So what the government wants to see is a UK company that's going to grow, and the focus is not to just build a technology with a, a two-man show and sell it, but that you're going to build the technology and build a company. You're going to have a UK company that's going to hire more people and have more sales and revenue. 
And it really comes down to the government wants to see more tax dollars going back into the system. It's a vicious circle, but you need to have that focus first of all. So how do you navigate that is, you've got to think of having a mini business plan. Okay, where am I spending money to grow my business over the next three to 18 months? And I use the term three to 18 months because most programs will take anywhere from a month on the low end to about 20 weeks to get approval, most of the average programs. So if you're not spending in that period, most likely you're not gonna get anything. That's number one. Once you've got that little mini business plan, you can work with a consulting firm or navigate yourself on funding portals that are out here, they can, if you do have the bandwidth, to say, okay, this is what we're doing, these are the activities, these are the programs. Once you get the list of programs, it could be five, it could be 30, depending on your activities, you can now go do the applications. And then some programs have an opportunity to apply any time of the year. Some will say, hey, we only have a one month window, it could be the 1st of December to the end of December to get your application in. So the idea would be to pre-prepare the applications before the window opens. Again, it's very competitive. It's first come, first serve. Anything less than £50,000, you can probably apply and, and really get the money yourself and compete. Anything over £50,000, you really need to get in touch with a program manager, navigate. I like to describe the difference between the government incentives and tax credits. The tax credits are entitlement. If you spend the money, you get a return. I'm going to describe the government grants like the mafia or the mob. If you don't build a relationship and they don't like you, no matter how good your project is, you're not going to get funded. So all this comes to understanding how do you navigate the system. And this is where consultants come in, and they can help you with that. Right. Okay, so I've sucked you into the, the detail there. That's yeah. very helpful and very clear. Now, let's, let me try and sort of suck you back out of that. There's a whiteboard over there. If you were to stand up, take a pen, and write at the top, UK state aid to UK fintechs, and draw sort of territories all over, over that, how would the main areas break down within what the UK does for fintech? What, what, what are the categories? What are the main categories? So the main categories you have, the British Business Bank has uh, programs, initiatives for like loans uh, to get you there, anywhere from £500 to £25,000. You have angel investors, another category of where to get capital from. The angel investor co-investment scheme. Yeah, you've got those schemes out there that, you know, they invest and you get matching funds to get that going. You have the C-bills where everything was around COVID-related schemes or interruption schemes. But again, you're getting money, but there are some hidden incentives and penalties around that people aren't aware of because it cuts into your tax credits as well. So if you are relying on tax credits, you might want to think about, do we actually want to take this or not? Because it's like you can't double dip basically on different government incentives on the same, for the same costs. And then you have the government grant programs and the actual tax rates are out there. So let's start with the last one. So people know about British Business Bank, or if they don't, they can sort of Google it. We've spoken about angel investors recently on the podcast and the co-investment scheme, which is match funding, as you say, can help top that up. And if you're getting good angels, then the angels should be able to help you with that. The C-bills was a very sort of specific thing. And grants are the complicated thing. So in terms of tax credits and, and stuff like that. I would assume that the main thing with that is that it's an accounting sort of hand wave and that if you're a fintech, just as you need a good account, uh, a lawyer f- legal firm, you need a good accounting firm. And I would assume, correctly or incorrectly, that if I'm setting up a new fintech tomorrow, my accountant says, oh, well, you should apply for the microphone investment tax credit or something, something like that. And I would assume that for many people, it would be the accountants that, who tell them about this. And now, now is that sort of right, wrong, roughly right? I'll say yes and no. If you've got a smart account, they'll let you know about it. But the complication with the R&D tax credit, not a complication is there's still a portion of it where you have to do a technical write-up. Accountants aren't going to do that. They're going to rely on the client to do that. 
and the client either doesn't have the bandwidth or may end up using incorrect language, which then says, well, this doesn't really qualify as R&D or innovation. It just sounds like routine work. An accountant, if they don't understand the technology, they're not going to be able to write and be innovative as well. So if you've got someone that's got experience with it, great. The engineers, developers that can write a report. Nine out of 10 times, you're probably going to end up using a consulting firm that specializes in, in the tax credit. So there is a technical element to it to qualify. It's not just numbers. Hey, we spent X amount of salaries and subcontractors to go and apply. So there is a technical report that needs to be put into that. So yes, accountants can tell you about it, but they might not exactly be able to complete that, the technical portion. They can do the, the financial portion, not a problem. Okay, and then backing up to the grants, I think, did you, did you say 2,000? Yeah, there's over 2,000 programs. Wow, it would take quite a while to apply to all 2,000. Well, not all 2,000 would apply to the fintech. Well, so we're talking about, you can get money for, let's say you're in the music world and you're an upcoming artist, you're an amateur, you can get like up to 5,000 pounds for touring, for example. That would pay for a few beers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and if you're a writer and you're, you're about to write your first book, there's a grant for that. If you're an established writer that's published a book, there's funding for that. So, you know, there's a variety of different programs over the 2,000. For the fintech world, there's money for R&D, which is pretty much the first two, three, four years of hard grind, and then it's continuous. So if there's always funding available for that, it allows the company to take the risk to be innovative. So there's, and there's two sides of it. You've got grants that help you before you start spending money and as you're spending money to go through the cost, and then you have whatever's not covered by the grant, whatever's left over in R&D, you can then apply for the tax relief. And if you do it smartly enough, a lot of companies can cover all their R&D expenditure 100 or over 100%. And that's why it's important if you've got this idea of spending growth, you might want to utilize both sides of the coin on the, on the programs that are available. And based on your experience, I'm going to start with Canada, which you guys know better, obviously. Let's just say new entrepreneurs. What percentage of new entrepreneurs in Canada would be up to speed with the fact that, hey, there are all these programs out there and we should check out whether it's easy money or not? I mean, 50%, 10%, 90%? I'm going to probably say probably about 30%. And the reason being is, again, it's the same mindset everywhere. It's like, it's go, 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 build a product, build a product, build a product. There's events, there's seminars, it's happening, but people just don't make the time to navigate this. So it's still, even though it's been around, I'd say the majority of the government incentives probably have been around for about 10 years. The tax credit's been around since 1986. And it's probably the most lucrative one in the world is in Canada and then second in Australia. But people are still not aware of it. And so they're still going to be educated consistently where the money is. And there's also programs change month all the time. Quite. And I, I think one of the reasons may well be that you mentioned Canada and Australia, so I don't know what, what's going wrong with the Commonwealth, but that's another, <laughs> that's another whole series of podcasts and the mentality there. But certainly here, and I'm sure it's the case uh, in Canada, I think isn't 80% or 90% of Canadians live within 10 miles of the US border or something in, insane like that? Uh, I don't know if the stat's that big, but yeah, if you're, if you're near a major city, you probably do. So like, I'm from the West Coast, I'm 20 minutes from the border where I live. Yeah, yeah. But even if you weren't physically, even if you were 500 miles north in, in, in Canada, culturally, we're all turning American these days in the, sort of this globalist world. And the sort of young entrepreneurs over here have been very much influenced by some of these West Coast series on startups and, and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, Facebook and all the yada, yada, yada. And I assume that the average sort of series they watch on the box about how sexy and fun it is being a startup and, and all that doesn't talk about, oh, yes, and now we're going to apply for government grants for 18 months because it's not really Definitely such an American there. thing. No, it's not. The U.S. and Canada is a completely different market, especially on the government funding side as well. The U.S. is a lot harder to navigate on the government grant side. So tax credit in the U.S. is not a cash 
return. Where in the UK and Canada is. So it's more of an incentive to get money back. The US, it just applies to your payroll taxes. So if you're a young company, you're not going to apply for the R&D tax relief in the US because it really does not make an impact on your business until your year three, year four, when you really do start hiring people. So being closer, what the US gives to Canada is easy, easier capital to VC and angel capital versus government funding initiatives. So we find a lot of the US people in the US coming up north versus companies going the other way for the government initiatives. And then once they're there, they'll go back. Yes, back in the day, the colonies did in America did have some connection <laughs> to England. And I think they've preserved old-fashioned English approaches <laughs> of unstate centralism better than the UK has. So if you're in, in Canada, where this thing has been around for a while, the mentality has been around for a while, for the sake of argument, as you say, maybe about a third of new entrepreneurs know about it. I mean, once you've been around the block a few times, you, you, you kind of know what the funding landscape is in all its glory. In the UK, maybe unfair question, but what would your guess be of what percentage of entrepreneurs have in their mind at the outset, oh, I better check out government tax credits and grants? I'm going to say probably about 20 to 25%. It will obviously vary from industry. I mean, you know, if, say you're in the music business and everyone says, oh, you can get sort of five grand of beer money, then th- that word will go around quite quickly. It'll go around quickly, but then they'll be like, where do I find it? Yeah, and that, yeah. That, That's the issue. With how do all I fill the, in the forms? It's like, it's like, how do you fill in the forms? How do I find the site? How do I find the portal? Navigating it has been the difficult part. And I, and I found that in every country. And they, that's why these funding portals now exist. And actually, one of the most popular funding portals in the UK for government initiatives is actually a Canadian company. Right. <laughs> from Montreal that set it up for the UK, which is really weird. But yeah, the word gets around and then it does become competitive. But what that allows, which is a nice thing, if that budget gets used up, so let's say there's a 10 million pound initiative for hiring developers in the fintech world. Uh, and it's a, it could be a county grant versus a country grant, a national grant. And it's for Middlesex. That 10 million pounds gets used up straight away and they get rid of that money really quickly. They'll get a bigger budget next year. And those people will stay employed in that government job. If they're not able to get rid of that money, that program will switch or they'll shut it down and the criteria changes. So it's good that the programs are popular and they get out there. It's good for me in one way with what I do, but it's really good for the, for the people that are chasing those programs. Right. In terms of the outlook, I think the outlook for this kind of stuff is relatively straightforward. And I don't think I'm sticking my neck out and making a forecast that you know, state funding, state centralism will be around for some time until civilization collapses in a heap and people reboot it on a, a much simpler tax code and get rid of 99.9999% of the tax code and yeah. uh, go back to keeping it um, simple. But in a world where this complexity keeps big corporatism in place, whether it's big agriculture, big pharma, big tech, a military industrial complex uh, or whatever, I don't see the sort of the, the, the powers that be who do pay for lobbying government um, being very busy saying, let's simplify everything radically and, and make everything a level playing field. And we've seen the same thing in fintech as well, in that there were off the top of my head over 100 P2Ps in the UK, and then they became regulated for, for everyone's safety and protection, which of course is what the state's there for, ha-ha. And the number um, slashed dramatically. And the interesting thing was the small ones who got sort of pushed off the ed- edge of the boat, as it were, whined and moaned, but nobody really heard them. And, and the bigger players, who had just had a moat dug around them, some competitive protection, they said, oh, we welcome investor protection. This is really, <laughs> this is really good. Anyway, so it's going to be around for some time. So I assume that what keeps you up at night is, is not 
is state funding going to disappear and my job won't exist tomorrow? But rather, there's plenty of good folks out there trying to create good businesses that aren't leveraging this. So how do you see the future, as opposed to just being on a thousand podcasts, of spreading the word and of ensuring that citizens, that that taxpayers of countries get the maximum benefit from their state that they can? rather than leaving it on the, on the table. How do you see that education piece going? So yeah, the key word is education, right? It's actually running workshops and ed- educating and working with um, strategic industry partners who are in that same space, sending the same message out. Programs are out there, utilize this, grow your business. And obviously the programs aren't designed for every business from running a corner shop to a fruit stand. It's really is focused on, the government does have a mandate on key areas of focus for innovation. And that's where really the key is in the current business. I did mention, yeah, there's money for musicians and artists, but that's not really where much of the money is. The money's in certain key areas. So it's all educating and educating and get the word out there. And I think the word's already spreading. Like there are, there's consulting firms that are popping up out of the woodwork saying, hey, we can help companies navigate this and get this. On the tax relief side, it's been going for about, in the UK for about 20 years, if not longer. Uh, and they're evolving the programs. They're coming out with new ones for gaming tax relief. So if you're in the gaming industry, the, the film tax credit's getting a little bit better. So there's, they're trying to encourage companies to come here and make more movies or do more gaming because of these incentives. So I think the word is spreading. What I'm doing personally is I'm running workshops. I'm going around to an exit. I'm partnering up with Level 39 like I am today, running a workshop here tomorrow just to educate companies, hey, there's this out there. Are you guys leveraging it? If not, this is how you do it. And I think more of that's going to happen. And, and I think the local city that have programs and money are trying to work with us as now as well to say, hey, could you let everyone know that we've got money for them? So, for example, in Peterborough has a CPCA program. We're working with them uh, on an initiative to help companies set up shop there. They're providing funding for that. Wow, very complicated. Good. OK, well, let's go into OKR. Let's wrap up. Before we wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all the listeners out there. I hope that it's been useful to many of you to understand the landscape and the possibility and potentiality and my philosophical perspective to one side, why leave free money on the table, is an obvious question. I'd also like to thank my brand partners for the podcast. Smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. The leading-edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. Theenlistedboard.com, your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making your board an engine of growth today. Okay, Bavik, so we've mentioned OKR once or twice, and you've mentioned sort of the macro that there were these funds out there, and there's going to be a fund in the UK, and you mentioned that there's sort of 2,000 grants, and Peterborough's got a grant, and there's tax credits, and nah, 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 nah. Maybe for people like me who haven't had their coffee yet, <laughs> and therefore are having problems sticking all these legal pieces together in the mind, you can just complete how all these bits stick together to make a sort of a coherent whole, and then some shout-outs about how uh, OKR can get even bigger and better uh, in the future if any of the listeners happen to have what they're after. So I think the biggest thing I want to fill in in topic is it's non-dilutive funding. So anything that's, any money that you're receiving, whether it's uh, as a loan or a grant or a tax credit, you're not giving away equity or control of your company. And what I found, and this is on an international level, is a lot of young companies are trying to raise capital too quick. And by the time they really need to raise capital, They've lost control of their companies. And I normally say if you're pre-revenue and you're raising equity, you're probably going to end up giving away 40 to 50% of your company really quickly. And then if you get to the MVP stage, maybe 30 to 40%. But if you're at commercialization stage, it'll be between 5 and 20% and you retain control. 
So that's, that's one of the big things about OKRs. We're educating companies to say, hey, we've got a solution for you there. What's our solution? So we provide bridge loans. So with a lot of the tax credit programs, it can take anywhere from 28 days to six months to get your money from the HRMC. Average is about three months. So we bridge that gap by taking that as security. A lot of young companies don't have assets. So we just take the program as security without them giving away personal guarantees or equity and leverage that. They get the money from the government, we get paid. Really simple process. Government grants has two layers to it. I mentioned 90% of the programs have sort of a pound to pound match to sort of qualify. Companies don't have that. What I do is I can provide them an LOI to say we would provide the cash contribution for no cost. We do this as a free service so they can actually qualify for the grant. Once the grant gets approved, you don't actually get the money up front from the government. How it works is you go spend, you submit a report, and then they reimburse you whatever the approval was, whether it's 50%, 70%. So again, a lot of companies are like, well, we've done our cash. How can we utilize this program? We would then take the program as security and finance that. And that doesn't fall foul of the government checking that it was match funding rather than sleight of hand, does it? No. Work? So the government encourages it. So I'm going to say probably about 95% of the programs will let you do that. And they have rules. Every program has its rules. You've got a few programs say, you're not allowed to leverage this for any funding. We can't do anything about those ones. We're lucky it's only about 5% at the moment of those programs. But majority of the programs will let you leverage those programs because they know you need money to utilize it to actually get the funding back. And they want you to grow. So... This allows them to have a lot of the young companies now to chase the programs they thought they couldn't get before, especially the big money, because they thought, well, we haven't got matching funds, we haven't got the cash, now they can leverage it. And you're still going to be raising capital and doing what you do with friends and families and investors, but it's never a quick process. I'm going to say most of the times when you go to pitch and you're raising capital, you get a lot of looky-loos, where they'll keep asking the same questions for nine months and still won't write you a check. And if you hang on to that and you're not trying to utilize the other non-dilute, you're going to get stuck. And by the time you really get there, someone else has built it and taken over the market. So to keep you in the race, you've got to sort of do everything parallel. But non-dilute is really way to go. And then what we've been finding um, more and more, especially in the recent, as we've been doing funding government initiatives, we sort of evolved about two years ago where we're actually financing traditional asset lending as well. But instead of the property and the equipment which we do, like a traditional bank, we found something very unique where the banks... Uh, the British bank are doing their loans and other institutions, they won't help a lot of companies that don't have revenue for the earliest part of the business for two years or less. When you get there, we'll finance you. When you get there, we'll give you a loan or a line of credit. So what we're doing is if they land a contract, whether a private company or a government contract, we will actually finance the contract. So we'll give them the cash to go and do what they need to do to meet that agreement, whether it's in the service industry or whether it's in the manufacturing industry. So in the fintech space, it's getting more and more popular because in the early stages, they land big contracts, develop a platform for a client. But then like, well, we need about 30 developers to really get this done in six months. We don't have the money for it, but these guys are willing to pay us for it. Why don't you sign a contract on the deliverable? And so we're doing that. So now it allows a lot of young companies to have the confidence to say, I'm going to go chase a contract now because I know if I land a contract, I can talk to OKR and they can help us out with the cash to get that going. And again, it's all non-dilutive. You're not giving away equity, right? And so what does OKR need to be even bigger and better than it is today? What shout outs? The biggest shout outs is reach out if you want to understand how to leverage government programs. I can connect you to the specialists in the UK. I probably work with about 20 different firms right now in the UK that that's all they do is tax credits or government grants, which is really good. And then if it's like, yeah, we're, we're already getting the grants, but we haven't been able to leverage them or we've turned them down, especially because we didn't have the money, reach out. You know, Our goal is um, we've actually committed to deploying about 25 million pounds into the UK tech ecosystem.
And I'm here for two reasons. One is we're actually launched the official UK fund. So originally it was Canadian money coming out here, but now it's UK money going into the UK. So that's one of the reasons. And then the other reason is actually fast track uh, a lot of these companies that are at that, that we've already started lending money to as well. So that's why I'm here this trip. Excellent. Well, I did say at the beginning that maybe I have to rant and rave at the end, but I don't have to rant and rave at the end because the world is the way that the world is right now. And it is certainly the case that in a complex environment, whether it's accounting or whether it's law or whether it's government grants and tax credits and stuff, the entrepreneur needs somebody to sort it. Yeah. And it's quite clear to me that with all this money floating around that entrepreneurs should be checking this out as an important avenue of potential funding, certainly in the early stages. And I'm sure most of the listeners will understand, but for those who don't, the non-dilutive point you make is super strategic because you and I form a new business tomorrow. It's our business. We raise money and it give away equity, mumble, mumble, mumble. But what that means is at some point in time, and it may be sooner rather than later, you are an employee. It's no longer our business. We work for it. Exactly. We work for other people. And uh, you don't have to read my entire book to realize that actually having your own empire or, or merely being a servant in it, there is a um, huge difference there, uh, not just in the financial returns, but in the ability to realize and keep persisting with your vision. If you and I own 99% of a company tomorrow, we can do our vision. We just have to agree amongst ourselves. If in five years' time we own 9%, our vision then goes out the window because everyone else goes, nah, we don't want to do that. So the non-dilutive thing is, is super important for the people who haven't got the essence of it. So thank you for that, Bavik. I'm very glad that you guys are over here. I'm very glad that there are people helping uh, with this environment. And one way and another, we all benefit by encouraging entrepreneurs and small companies to start doing new things as consumers, taxpayers, but also society. So I wish you and all these startups every success in the future. Thank you very much, Mike. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you are in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman. We could sit in a bender all day Watching the firelight dance, watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride, watching a happy moon ride Come away from the city But with the tarmac so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city But with the faces so great Mountains and the trees Can you see what I mean? 
Can you see what I mean? We fade in between the earth and the sky Kiss the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Watch the fire light dance with me, 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 watch the fire light dance with me,